Hello, and welcome back to I Want Her Job, the podcast. Thank you for listening. We are here to share inspiring life and career stories that hopefully give you a why not or what if moment. If you're enjoying our shows, please remember to go to our site, IWantHerJob.com, where you can read a lot more interviews and please rate and review us on iTunes. Every review really helps. So our guest today is Frida Pauli, and she is amazing. After getting her PhD in neuropsychology, and after working for 10 years as a postdoc, Frida then went for her MBA at Harvard, and as she shares in this show, that is where she got the idea for Pymetrics. So Pymetrics is an exciting approach to hiring. Companies can bypass the resume altogether or use Pymetrics as an extra resource. Here is how it works. Candidates play neuroscience-based games that assess their strengths, personalities, capabilities, and then match them to roles. Companies using Pymetrics during the hiring process include Unilever, LinkedIn, Tesla, and Accenture, and data is showing increased retention rates for organizations using Pymetrics. We talk about all this and also have an honest conversation about Frida's early influences, strengths, and weaknesses. Listen in to hear how Frida is boldly leading a massively exciting hiring shift in our society. If you have started jobs that were a terrible fit for your strength and personality type, and honestly, who hasn't? This new resource could change how companies hire and how candidates are matched to roles. I thought we'd start just with a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are. So I was reading that you were pre-med at Dartmouth and then then you went for a PhD in neuropsychology. Mm-hmm. Sounds yep. so fascinating. So mm-hmm. tell us about how you decided to go into that field. Sure, yeah. So I was pre-med, uh, that is true, a long time ago and uh, have always been fascinated by the life sciences. Um, and I was pre-med at Dartmouth and you know, went through all of my applications for med school. And while I was applying to med school, I was working in what we call a wet lab, which is um, a lab where you know, you're basically um, you're doing something invasive, right? So a dry lab is where you just work with people and a wet lab is where you're working with animals or some kind of like something where you're in contact with blood or some other bodily fluid. And um, I had not done that before and I hated it. I was like, wow, this is terrible. I just had, it was backwards. I was like, I should have done this before all those med school classes. I just cannot handle Uh, all the gore. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make it through four years of med school. um, If I can't even make it through, you know, I basically quit my, my lab job after a month. And so it was this time of soul searching, because I was like, you know, thinking I'd put in all this work and effort. And, you know, uh, what was my, what was my dad going to (laughs) say? And like, all that good stuff. But I was like, I just, I'm going to be, I'm going to hate my life for the rest of my life if I go down this road. Um, And so I actually then decided, okay, well, I still am very interested in um, the life sciences, super interested in the brain. And that's sort of what I wanted to go to med school for anyways, was to do something brain related neurology. And so I was like, okay, well, if I don't go to med school, what's the alternative? And the alternative was really to do neuroscience. um, And it was a field that was just coming online. So sort of the first fMRI studies were done um, in the mid nineties, which is around the time that I was sort of making this uh, decision and so I was like, okay, great. I'm going to apply for a PhD program where I can study neuroscience. And I then also said to myself, okay, and before I do that, I want, you know, because whatever PhD or, you know, whatever postgraduate work you do, it involves working. Like in med school, you have to do residencies and internships. And for a PhD program, it's the same thing. And I was like, okay, I don't want to make the same mistake I did last time. So I'm going to go figure out what's the hardest 
um, clinical population you could possibly work with in a PhD program and let's go do that first before I apply because I didn't want to go through the same process of applying and then realizing oh gosh I can't handle it mm -hmm. and so I actually ended up going to work in a prison um, for a year Wow. I figured, you know, that's a pretty tough population. If I can manage that, I could probably manage other populations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I did that. I actually thought it was fascinating to work with, uh, it was a woman's prison in Massachusetts and working with incarcerated uh, women and just kind of like, you know, they were obviously challenging, but, but very rewarding. So that kind of checked that box and said, okay, I think I can deal with this. Um, and so applied to PhD programs. Um, and at the time, there were actually very few, if any, PhD programs that were focused entirely on neuroscience. So neuropsychology is kind of an adjacent field. Um, and I was geographically tied to Boston at the time. And so I said, okay, great. They've got this great neuropsych program. I'll go there. And then I ended up doing, and part of the thinking was that I would do all of my research in brain imaging and neuroscience um, as part of my, my PhD program. So that, that was the, the long story of how I ended up uh, getting a PhD in neuropsychology. Wow. And so smart that you're like, okay, let me test this out first because you didn't repeat yeah. the same mistake. And so what was the specific track that you really um, went deep into in your studies? Um, there wasn't so much a deep track. I mean, neuroscience is a very broad field. It could mean working with flies. It could mean working with monkeys. It could mean working with people. It could mean working with cells. I mean, so for, you know, my PhD program, it was all human neuroscience and so there was no animal work involved and so that I guess is a specialty but that's not really that much of a specialty and then I didn't in my actual um, you know uh, research really covered a lot of different things like looked at um, brain function in what we call healthy healthy people and then a whole variety of different uh, disordered populations so you know depression anxiety um, schizophrenia, things like that. So I didn't, there wasn't a particular area of specialty because I think, I mean, some people do that. I, I think it was more interesting to do broader, you know, sort of looking at cognitive and emotional processes kind of across a wide range of, uh, of, of people. So. So interesting. I mean, especially when we hear about the increase in mental health issues across the U S and for people listening who are interested in this type of studies, what, what advice would you give them about like pursuing this kind of degree? Um, well, again, I think that like with, you know, PhD in a, a neuro field could mean anything from you're working with patients every day, you're doing uh, testing to your, you know, I ended up being a research scientist. Um, there's a lot of different outcomes that you can, you can uh, choose um, if you have a, a, a degree in in this field. Um, so it really just depends on, I think, what you want to do, whether you want to work with patients, whether you want to do research, uh, whether you want to do some combination. So it's, it's hard to give kind of generic advice. I think the, the bigger thing is just um, trying to figure out ahead of time what you think you want to do uh, once you're done, you know? Um, and I think having a clear understanding of that is always helpful before you kind of embark on, you know, whatever field of study. Um, you know, that having been said, I then changed again in terms of like realizing that I didn't want to just do basic research. And that's how Pymetrics was formed because I wanted to do more applied research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, starting a company in this space allowed me to do that. So, you know, I think try to have a sense of what it is that you want your degree or whatever to allow you to do. But then I think you always have to be flexible in life and just say, look, if this isn't, you know, the final end goal that I just, you know, thought it was going to be, you know, just really 
understanding what your next step is going to be. So Sure. And so then you went for your MBA at Harvard Business School and that's where Pymetrics, is that where the idea yeah. was born? Yeah. So, the, so again, I was a research scientist then for 10 years, both as a PhD student and then as a postdoc. Um, and it just really loved the research that we were doing. But then the, the challenge with, you know, neuroscience research, at least, you know, 10 years ago was that um, there wasn't a lot of application. So unless you wanted to start doing, you know, drug studies or um, other things like that, it just wasn't, there wasn't like a real way to see your, the impact of your work. And I think to me, I became more and more feel, you know, just felt like I was getting more and more boxed in. I was like, I don't want to just do research for the rest of my life. I think I want to help people. Um, and so that's how I ended up going to get an MBA is because I thought, okay, well, there are a lot of scientists that then go and commercialize the science that they're doing. And the MBA is a tried and true path for, for doing that. And so that's how I, you know, wrote my application to, to HBS saying, I want to commercialize the science that we're doing. I didn't really know how or what, but I just had this idea that there would be some applied use case. And then it was really while I was at, and I was thinking it would be more of a medical app, but just some other sort of life science application. Um, and then as I was sitting there in my MBA program, um, I was just watching recruiting happen for two years. Cause you know, that's what, MBA students do and that's what companies do they it's just a matchmaking it's a two-year matchmaking process mm -hmm. of like what's my next job going to be and I was just really struck by the fact that it hadn't changed you know since I was in college and that had been a while um, and the fact that you know we were using technology enabled matching solutions and everything in life and dating and movies and products and I was just like this career thing is so important and how come there's mm -hmm. nothing in the space that addresses that it just seemed strange to me. I was like, wow, this is really not, doesn't make sense. And that's how the idea of Primetrics came to be is like, hey, we want to understand something more fundamental about people than just like what their resume is telling you. We want to be able to use machine learning, which we know works way better than other um, analytics methods to help predict outcomes. And we want to make this all be tech enabled. And, you know, by the way, this has been done in so many other verticals. There's no reason that we can't do this um, in, in the space of careers and hiring. So that's how the idea for Pymetrics came to be. I love that. So if you hadn't gone to the business MBA, you no. never would have come up with this idea. So it was like, I don't think I would have. I honestly <laughs> don't think I would have. Like, I think I might have come up with a different idea. Yes, Maybe it would true. have been just good, but I definitely would not have come up with this particular idea. And the other reason this idea came to me is because I just saw the, you know, like, I always say that, you know, our solution, even though it's an enterprise solution, gets sold to companies, I think it has as much benefit to the actual people that go through it. Um, because here I was watching so many very talented people um, think that they wanted to do something. Like, I'll, there's a great example of a, a person I knew that wanted to be in investment banking. And she was very set on this idea and everyone is kind of looking at her going like, but you like to go to bed at nine, like investment <laughs> bankers have to stay up all night. Like, have you yeah. like, you know, just sort of like, does this really make sense? And, but you know, she's very determined and hardworking and smart and she got her investment banking internship at some bank and, you know, three days in, she was like, I hate this. And we were all kind of like, but we knew you were going to hate it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Not to yeah. say the politics would have solved all of that, but it was also just seeing how either people had very sort of, ideas about themselves that maybe wouldn't have followed, you know, wouldn't have been true in reality, like, or the flip side where I think there was like, I, I was experiencing the situation where I was like, I think I, you know, want to be an entrepreneur. Um, I really want to start a company, but I was looking around and I was like, okay, but I'm like, 
you know, I'm in my thirties. I'm a single mom at the time. Like I, I'm not 24. I'm not an, you know, I don't code. Like I didn't in quotes look like an, an entrepreneur. Right. And so I think this idea of trying to match people based on their inherent aptitude rather than their belief they might have about themselves or some sort of like perception that people have about what it takes to be something was also just a problem that I was facing myself and that I could see so many other people facing that, um, that the entire sort of experience of being in an MBA program or being in any sort of program where people are trying to understand what their next step is in life uh, was very formative to, to building Pymetrics for sure. Yeah. And that reminds me a lot. I've read advice that said, ask your friends what they think they would see you doing career-wise because right. a lot of times people are, just don't see things that seem That's right. so obvious. To That's right. Yep. And quickly, before we get into biometrics, I'm curious what you thought of the whole MBA since your, I mean, your education before that was different, yeah. but um, so. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I think um, it's interesting because a PhD program, like a lot of people think, oh, you spend years and years in school, like taking classes, PhD program for, a lot, I mean, especially if you're in a life science, it's really just a job. Um, you know, you're working in a lab from like seven in the morning till six at night. Like, so it, 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 I had been working for, you know, 10 years pretty much. Um, and so it was kind of an interesting step to go and take like time off to really be a student again. Um, because an MBA program, it's, that's all you're doing is classes. And, um, and I thought it was super interesting because again, a lot of innovation comes from different fields coming together. And I think that's, where sometimes that can happen is in a context where you've kind of taken a break from what your normal life was and, you know, exposed yourself to a lot of different ideas. So I think that is one of the advantages of, of an educational program of any kind is that it just allows you to think more broadly about what you're doing. Um, and I also think that a lot of tools that they teach you in an MBA program, especially for somebody like myself with a science background, um, were very helpful in the sense that, you know, the case method is all about making decisions with um, imperfect information and just saying, look, you're, you know, as a scientist, you have to be like 99.9% .9 sure before you say anything here, they're like, oh, you only got 60% of the information you have to make a decision. That's just the way the world works. And um, I think it's great training for, you know, having a business because it definitely requires a lot of, of that type of thinking. Um, so I found it super super great because again, it allowed me time to think outside of the box and learn new things. Um, again, I think it just depends on what you're looking to get out of, get out of a program, but I thought it was pretty great. And, and I think it's so uh, like amazing that now you can blend these two worlds and, yeah. now, and you came up with this idea. So Pymetrics, um, removing the resume, right? Mm -hmm. So tell sure. us, Tell us how Pymetrics works, so AI-based algorithms, but I'd love to hear you. Yeah, sure. So basically what we do is we use behavioral science. Um, so basically a science of understanding people's behavior and what that says about them um, and machine learning or, or AI um, to do the prediction piece. And we marry those two things um, to basically match the right person to the right role. And that's, again, it's just like, it's a, the, the notion is just as simple as what Netflix does when it tries to match you to the right movies. And it's actually very similar in its concept because what Netflix did that was different than what Blockbuster was doing is that it actually, instead of just looking at the 
what I call the movie resume, the blurb, and trying to match movies to people based on that. They'd actually analyze movies at a much more fundamental level. Um, and so it's the same with what we do with Pymetrics. We try to we try to analyze people on a more fundamental level, and then we use machine learning to allow people to say these are you know the employees that I like. Please let's figure out what makes them special and, and find me more people like that. Just like you tell Netflix, Hey, these are the movies I like. And it then recommends um, more movies that have those similar fundamental traits. And I think what's awesome about looking at people at a deeper level, you know, it's just the whole, the whole notion of like, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, and it's so interesting because a lot of people are like, Oh, well, you're using algorithms. Don't you just homogenize the workforce, blah, blah, blah. And what I always tell people, I was like, I, we have yet to have a client that tells, me or anyone like oh wow these people you're sending us are so cookie cutter because what we're really looking at is like something much more fundamental whereas a resume based process is much more likely to produce a cookie cutter outcome it's like hey Polina you know you went to Michigan I went to Michigan you were in the sorority I went to you know like there's that very homogenizing effect of like looking at these pretty pretty un uninformative signals of of what you think that says about someone and using that to make a decision. And that creates a much more, I think, homogenous workforce than actually looking at more fundamental things about people. But at the end of the day, it's leveraging very similar concepts as any recommendation engine that we use um, in our daily lives to basically help people find the right role and help companies find the right people. So Accenture and Unilever are two amazing organizations using it. Can you talk to us about, is it for entry-level roles that they're using yeah. this? And yeah. so I assume there's a kind of filtering before they get into Pymetrics, right? Or no? Um, it depends. So, so I guess, so to answer the first question, um, sometimes it gets used for entry-level. Other times it can be used for experienced hiring. There's no sort of right time to use it. It depends on the client and, and where they're feeling the most um, pain, I guess. Um, and so definitely it, we're not pigeonholed in the, in the entry level space, but those two clients happen to be using it there. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, the second part is there, are there other filtering mechanisms? It really depends on how a client wants to use it. So in the case of Unilever, they actually do not look at, um, a resume at all anymore. Um, they, I think, have a few questions like, you know, you authorized to work in this country and think, you know, a couple other sort of questions that are mandatory, but they've really kind of shied away from doing anything resume-based. And again, you know, the, the advantages that they've seen after using a system like this are pretty tremendous, not just in, um, you know, the efficiency of the recruiting process, but also in the match rates, right? So people after implementing Pymetrics are much more likely to get an offer and accept an offer um, than they were prior to that, which is fantastic, right, for both mm -hmm. sides of, of the equation. And they're much more likely to be retained as well. So that's another, you know, and, and you know, be and retention is a sign of like, I'm happy at my job. I like it here. I don't want to go anywhere else. So, um, so I do think that even though sometimes people are like, oh, that seems so, I don't know, um, sometimes people have a reaction to when a decision is made by an algorithm. And again, it's not a decision. It's just calling the group of people that's applying to you in its entirety down to a, a number of people that are, you're actually going to interview. So it's not like we're actually making the decision. We're just helping um, find a more probable talent pool for them. But I do think that, you know, the people that have implemented it in a pretty significant way have seen, have seen some pretty big benefits from it. That's amazing. Um, what a shift, like just 
incredible shift in 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 so many ways yeah. for society. And I, and I think and I think the other thing that you know to mention is that it's not just about um, making the recruiting process more efficient or making the person much more likely to succeed in the role, which by the way are two things that are you know very very important. I would say. The other thing that we've seen, you know, dramatic improvements in is diversity. So I think, again, I, I really want to challenge this notion that people um, have that if you're using an algorithmic tool, by definition, your diversity is going to go down. That's absolutely not true. I would say it's 100% dependent on the type of algorithm that you're using. So um, in, you know, cybersecurity, there's such a thing as white hat and black hat technology, meaning, you know, you can use it for good or for bad. And I think the same can be said for any kind of algorithm. Like I think if you build, you know, Amazon was in the news, you know, in the last couple of months around building a biased algorithm. Yes, if you build a biased algorithm, you will definitely re decrease diversity. There's no doubt about it, but we actually build algorithms that improve and increase diversity in some pretty meaningful ways. So I think we just need to challenge the notion that, you know, algorithms produce X outcome. It's not really that an algorithm will produce whatever outcome the creation, the people who created those algorithms uh, wanted to. And so in our case, we haven't really talked about this, but we proactively look at all of our algorithms for gender and ethnic bias. And if we find it, we remove it because we basically believe that fundamentally um, it's, it's a training set issue. Meaning if you've trained it on a, on a population of employees, that's kind of homogenous, you're going to get that homogenous, you're homogenizing algorithm, but you don't, doesn't need to be the case. And so again, I just wanted to point that out because I think a lot of times people don't fully appreciate the potential that um, unbiased algorithms have, I think, to really change the nature and the landscape of our workforce. I think it's actually one of the most important tools we have um, in the next decade to really meaningfully improve gender and ethnic and socioeconomic diversity in the workforce in a way that we just haven't been able to do, you know, mm -hmm. and we've talked about it. We've, uh, there've been so many things written about it. Like there's been so much energy put out into the world about how can we change it. <laughs> But at the end of the day, you can't change it unless you physically do something different. And I think technology actually has such a great potential to help us achieve this goal. So, so exciting. And can you talk just about like the candidate experience quickly? Like what, yeah. same, how would it work? Sure. Absolutely. So again, candidate experience is another thing that we wanted to spend some time thinking about because again, back to how this idea came to me, it was watching my friends kind of go through a pretty crappy recruiting process, right? Like half of people never hear back. And I'll distinctly remember this. There was a big tech company that comes to HBS. Um, and again, you know, they're, they're Harvard students. We shouldn't feel too bad for them. But, you know, there was a big tech company that came and literally people would drop their resume and they wouldn't even get a like, thank you for submitting your resume. It was literally the prototypical black hole where it's like mm -hmm. you drop it and like poof, it goes somewhere and you don't know what. <laughs> Um, and you know, and I was thinking, well, this happens at Harvard where we're all overserved. Can you imagine what happens at, you know, community college where people are spending far fewer resources, right? So again, it's not a good experience. People are going through the same thing over and over again. There's a lot of rejection because at any given time, you're much more likely to be rejected than accepted. So it's just a, just a crappy time for people. Um, and so we try to make the platform candidate friendly. And so we do that in a variety of ways. So first you go through my metrics, you get some feedback about yourself. So at least you feel like, hey, I, I learned something about myself, right? Um, it's not specific to the role you've applied to. It's just sort of more informational. Then the second thing we encourage all of our companies to do 
is because each of the algorithms are unique to a role, if somebody applies to say marketing, but they're a better fit for sales, we actually encourage our companies to use it in that way so that you could say, hey, Polina, you know, you applied to marketing, but actually you're a better fit over here. So instead of just rejecting you and that's being the end of the story, we can actually have you sorted into a better role at that company, which is kind of cool, right? Because that doesn't happen mm -hmm. um, in life. And then the third thing that we encourage our companies to do is say, okay, let's say, you know, you've applied to marketing, you didn't, you're not a fit for that. They've recommended sales, but you don't, for whatever reason, want to go down that path. We then encourage all of our companies to allow their overflow or rejected candidates, however you want to put it, um, into our marketplace. So basically we have a talent marketplace where anyone who's gone through Pymetrics can be matched to any algorithm and any company we've ever built. So again, the, the, the experience is, and, it, and it's opt-in, the person has to opt-in and the company has to opt-in, but if you both opt-in, you can actually get opportunities sent to you where you're a great fit, right? So the whole idea is really to make, to take away this, it's, um, it's redirection, not rejection. That's the way we like to think about it. Because again, at the end of the day, most people, at the end of this process, get a job. It's just painful, right? It's painful. It's full of rejection. It's full of like repetitive processes. And why not try to make that um, as efficient and as, you know, as candidate friendly as possible. So those are the things that we've done, especially the the redirection as opposed to just flat out rejection, um, we think are really important in trying to help the candidate experience. Absolutely. So two questions that come to mind. Number one, like how does it account for like your interests and things you're sure. passionate about? And then the second one, so for the companies, and I think you list this on your website, can you tell us like the traits, um, like the aptitude, the skills that you're, um, the tests are assessing for? Sure. So yeah, let me ask, let me answer the first question. So we um, in terms of like your interest and all the rest of it, the, that is the piece where we rely on um, a person that's applying to a role to sort of indicate their interest by what they're applying to, right? So if I'm not interested in finance, I'm not going to apply to finance. That's my way of expressing I'm interested or I'm not interested because you're right. We're just assessing kind of your fit. We're not trying to understand like, do, do you want this job? And that's really on the candidate to express that. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the things that we measure, it's not super complicated. It's things like attention, memory, flexibility, learning, um, altruism versus self-interest, um, how, what different types of rewards motivate you, how risk-taking you are under different conditions. So it's, you know, things that we consider that cognitive neuroscience or cognitive psychology have, have determined to be sort of you know, core building blocks or measurements that you can get from people that then go on to predict their suitability for, for different roles. You know what? So I, the friend you mentioned about the investment banking, it seems yeah. like I'm curious how it would pick that up. Like, would it be the altruism? Sure. Flexibility? Like, well, you know, well, that's the thing. I mean, that's, you know, it's so interesting because we are what we call a white box um, technology, meaning white box means that we explain the algorithms and how they make their decision. Um, I don't know exactly what the investment banking <laughs> algorithm looks like, so I, I can't speak to that. Yeah. Um, but definitely, I mean, one of the things that we see uh, for, you know, sort of the financial services sector versus others is indeed the sort of altruism versus self-interest. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a perfect example of how Pymetrics, the system is based on the idea that there's no right or wrong, right? Like, mm -hmm. so if you take that particular thing that we measure, um, there are certain situations in certain professions where you do want to have a more self-interested 
um, mindset. Because again, if you have a financial advisor, you don't want them to be super altruistic and giving your money away, right? You mm -hmm. want them to be thinking about, hey, how can you maximize my return? Versus if you're, I don't know, I'm making this up, but a customer service rep, you know, mm -hmm. then maybe, you know, you want to have, or even entrepreneurs apparently have a, have a more altruistic um, bent because, you know, they're trying to help the world, right? So again, it's not like entrepreneurs or bankers are inherently good or bad because both are very useful to people in life, mm -hmm. um, but they have a different profile and it's really helping you understand that, you know? Totally. I think there's probably people who are, spend 20 years and I think- totally. Yeah. They're in the wrong industry. And so, I mean, like, I'll just use a personal example. My husband is in finance. I think he's great at what he does. I don't think I could ever do what he does. Um, I don't think he'd be particularly good at what I do. Like, I mean, you know, but I have great respect for him. And the whole point is it's just like the world is so diverse. We need different people to be doing different things. And I think, I mean, we didn't really talk about this, but one of the challenges with older assessment tools um, is they really presuppose that there's like a good type of employee out there, right? And I can't tell you the number of times I've come across this where people challenge this notion that we're just about sorting people and that we don't have like some traits that make everybody good. And I'm like, no, we really don't. Like, you know, like I promise you, it's not like we're not lying to you. And it's because we've been kind of like, I think indoctrinated to think that there's like certain characteristics that make everybody like make you a good employee, no matter what, where. And I just think that it's very much like a rotten tomato score versus a Netflix score, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but like I've had the experience plenty of times where a movie has been recommended to me at like 90% and then I go to Rotten Tomatoes and it's a 20% score, right? Okay. So maybe a lot of people don't like that movie, but maybe I like it. Right. And so this whole idea that there is such a thing as a good employee, I think is just, false. I think it's just an old fashioned way of looking at things. Um, and I think it, we live in a world where everything is personalized and we know that that works so much better than assuming there are certain traits that just make everybody the golden employee and we should all be going for those. Cause that, I just don't believe that. I just, I don't. So. Yeah. Kind of reminds me about this book. I read the end of average where we're working, yeah. but, um, and one more question around Pymetric. So yeah. let, what if somebody, a hiring manager says, right, I still want five years experience in this sure. area. So that's with something that you would filter for and then run them through the assessment. Is that how yeah, it works? Yeah. So look, I mean, we don't, we don't, again, it's back to our general philosophy in life, which is whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. And so long as it's, you know, legal and ethical, <laughs> we're fine with it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if you feel like somebody cannot be successful in this job unless they've had five years experience, we're not going to tell you different. We're, that's not my job. I'm not here to play God. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to help you figure out what you think is best. Um, and so we often have companies that will add additional filters to the Pymetric score. It's not like, again, you look yeah. a bit more of an extreme example, but it's fine. If you want to have five other things that you think are critical, great. You know what I mean? We're just trying to help you make a better informed, more objective, less biased decision in whatever process you want to implement. Yeah. I can see how this could be amazing supplemental tests for companies, yeah, right? And let's absolutely. see how totally. retention stays higher. And it really depends on the confidence people have in these other metrics. And quite frankly, I think, you know, some of them, I don't think there is a huge amount of research that supports them. Like GPA cutoff is a very common one that people use that I think there's I, I don't know of any research that actually supports the fact that it's valid, um, but people use it because it's just another filter, right? Versus, yeah, sure, if you're hiring engineers and you need them to hit the ground running, you probably want to see some sample code. That seems like a very legit 
uh, filter you want to be applying. So again, we don't tell we don't opine um, as to what the other filter should be, but certainly allow companies to do whatever they want in that front. Again, so long as it's legal and ethical, we're we're, mm -hmm. we're fine with that. Got it. So tell us your vision of how hiring will happen in like ten years. Well, you know, <laughs> it's a lofty vision, but I do think that like more and more we should be relying on. Um, unbiased and predictive algorithms to help us make those initial decisions. Um, again, after, you know, we've culled down the, you know, from 10, from say you have a hundred thousand people applying and you've cut it down to 30,000 that you're going to interview. It's still a lot of people. It's not like you're excluding, you know, most of them. And what we're trying to say is that initial matching really should be done in a much more data-driven objective and fair way. Right. And so like, think about, you know, the way dating has changed, right? It used to be that, you know, you would most likely meet your spouse, um, I don't know, in college or through friends. Now it's like, you know, a third to half of all people have met through matching algorithms online, you know? And I think that that's sort of the trend that I would hope to see in hiring, which is that it's fine. You can still use these other processes that are kind of more analog, but I think more and more, um, I would hope, to see that the matching process would be facilitated by, you know, by a tool that makes things both most more predictive and more fair for people. Got it. Um, and so another question. So your experience, your education, your training, like it's extraordinary. I think it'd be hard to be more qualified than you are for the company that you started. I'm curious, has that made funding, um, like, do you think, has it made it easier a little? Because if not, like yeah. that would be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think so. If you read all the literature on, um, you know, the funding gap between men and women, so there's and there's a lot of literature out there on this. So they, there's a couple of things, a couple of themes, um, and it's not just related to funding, but it's you know funding, promotion, leadership, and you know, one of the things that um, for better or worse is true is that having some sort of domain expertise can be very helpful to everybody, but in particular to to women because. Um, women are judged on much more on their past experience, which again is so not pymetrics, but that's what it is as opposed to men that are judged on their potential. You know what I mean? And there's all these studies done that um, basically indicate that a man is kind of given, uh, you know, a lot more leeway in terms of, Oh, you know, he's going to be the next blah, blah, blah. Whereas a woman, it's like, Oh, what has she done? Right. Mm -hmm. To prove that she can do it. So I do think that having, you know, my academic background was, super helpful. Um, I hope that in the future, we don't need to rely on that. Um, and, you know, I hope that that becomes more balanced, but I definitely think that, you know, it was certainly helpful in terms of fundraising and, and, uh, and not just that, but also just in, in, you know, getting early clients and having them believe in the technology and whatnot. So. Yeah. Um, so speaking of your background and I'm curious, what strengths do you have? Do you think, um, maybe I'll, another question I had for you is early influences that mm -hmm. kind of led you to be, I sure. mean, you're so academically accomplished professionally right. and you're just getting started. So I'm just wanting to know a little deeper into yeah. how you are the way you are. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, look, I give a lot of credit, um, to my dad actually, because, um, you know, we, we, I always grew up knowing that I was very similar to him for, for better or worse. Um, and you know, my dad has also sorts of traits that I have that are not strengths. Like we're both very forgetful, uh, we're a little absent minded, you know, stuff like that. But one of the, he has a, a number of strengths. And I think one of them is that he 
um, is very adaptable. And I think that that's been a strength of mine. Like I think that, you know, um, in, you know, realizing at certain points in my life, whether it was realizing I couldn't deal with blood or realizing <laughs> I didn't want to be in academia for the rest of my life, I was like, okay, I cannot stay in this path. I need to change and do something different. And I think, you know, my dad has also been that way. He's had, you know, three careers and, you know, he's still going at it and he's almost 80, you know? So I think that he's definitely proved, shown me a path that, you know, you can, like, so long as you work hard and you put your mind to it and you have a passion for it, you can achieve, you know, w whatever you put your mind to. So I think I definitely attribute that um, to him. And I do think he was a, a real inspiration in that. Um, and in terms of strengths and weaknesses, I think, you know, that's one of my strengths. I think um, I'm very passionate about what I do. And I think that that inspires other people to be equally passionate. I think I can communicate well, in terms of what is it, what is this complex idea? Why does this even matter? I think that, you know, I have, you know, strong communication skills. Um, I have lots of weaknesses. We can get into that too, or we can do a separate podcast on that if you want. <laughs> I would love to because- I'm very forgetful. <laughs> I have lots of other weaknesses. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's, again, it's just back to finding a, a role that, um, you know, matches your strengths and, and you can mitigate your weaknesses, so. And is your father also in the sciences? He's not actually, he was a consultant for 30 years and then he became an entrepreneur for 10 years and then he is in finance now. So he's done a whole bunch of different things. Um, my, what, what is, what is true in my family is we have entrepreneurship that runs in the family. So my grandfather was an entrepreneur and my dad, even though he was in consulting for 30 years, he was really building out a lot of the early infrastructure and offices for what is now a well-known consultancy. So I think that that whole um, gene is is in the blood. And, and my oldest daughter, who's 13, um, I could easily see picking up that mantle. So Interesting. Um, because as she puts it herself, she's like, we were talking about, <laughs> she was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell shopping me. the other day. And she's like, oh, mom, she's like, I'm really going to have problems when I grow up. She's like, because I like shopping way too much. And I was like, oh, good. At least she's aware of this, right? Because I'm not a big shopper. I actually hate shopping. But, um, and she's like, yeah, you know, she's like, well, what, what kind of job can I get into? And I was like, well, you know, Ellie, like I could see you doing sales or like something entrepreneurial. And she's like, why is that? And, and I was explaining to her what that meant. She's like, yeah, because she's like, I'm very persistent. And like, when I put my mind to something, I really can persuade people. I was like, that's right. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, and, yeah. and so were, was, were you like in, in school and early schooling was sciences, like that's an area that would, did it come naturally kind of more easily to you? Yeah. I was one of those weird people who really liked science and really liked English at the same time. I was so uh, unusual. So I went to a fairly small high school, but I was so unusual that they actually booked, um, you know, AP math and AP science and overlapping times. So every week for the last, you know, two years of high school, I had to miss a third of one of those classes because nobody else was taking those two subjects. Interesting. <laughs> so funny. But um, I, don't, I don't think it's that uncommon a profile. My high school was like 80 people in their graduating class. So I think we just went to a small school. But, um, but I definitely really always loved both of those, both of those aspects of life. Um, and I definitely like being someplace where I can use all of my brain rather than if I just had to be creative or I just had to be quantitative. I think I know myself well enough that I wouldn't just feel very pigeonholed and I don't like that. Um, but yes, I've always had a love for both, both of those, both, both aspects of life.
Got it. And so I think you already touched on them, but any other kind of patterns that have led to your success? Um, I can already see you have to have a strong work ethic to have accomplished how much you have. Anything else that you could think of? Um, trying to think. Mm, I think really following what you're passionate about. Like I say this all the time. I think it is not easy. Like, you know, when I, so I, you know, was a scientist for 10 years and then, you know, went to get an MBA and my, my dad, whom I've already talked about was like so excited. He's like, Oh, finally, my daughter's gonna, you know, get a, he didn't call it a real job, but you know, like, a, a I don't know, like a well-paying job, right. Cause science isn't that <laughs> well-paid. And so when I told him that I was going to start a company, he was just like, he's Italian. He's like, Oh, Frida. He's like, do you think that's a good idea? Like, he just thought this was like a terrible, it's like, oh my God, I thought you were finally going to go get like a real, not a real job, but like a stable job. And now you're going to tell me you're starting a company. So my point is that I, it wasn't the most obvious choice for a, you know, mid thirties single mom to be doing this, but I was obviously very passionate about it. And I really know this about myself that if I don't, if I'm not passionate about what I'm doing, I'm like the world's worst employee. I'll go to home early. I will you know, come more to work late. I mean, you couldn't find a worse employee versus if I'm passionate about what I do, I'll just work all the time because it's just so inspiring. And so I do think that that's just a something I always try to tell people is that like, obviously you have to be realistic. You can't be jumping off a cliff with no safety net and you know, whatever, but at the, as much as you can, I think just try to find something that you're really passionate about, no matter what that is, because I think you'll be more successful and happy in life than if you just over-index on security or whatever it may be. So yeah, and I love that you're honest that you would be the worst employee at something you're not passionate about. Because I think many I know people, that about myself. I've been there. I've done that. Yeah. I have fired once in my life, and it was because I was like, oh, I hate this job. I've been there too. So it, it makes me so happy to hear you say that. Yeah. It just it happens to you also. Um, what about what outside of work? What lights you up? Any hobbies that people? I, might you know, I have two kids and another one on the way. So I think that like I don't yeah. know about you, but I, I don't really have hobby time anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. But I do really love my kids and. Um, and you know, I think they're great. I mean, yes, it's, it is exhausting. I'm sure any working parent will, will attest to that, but it's also just, you know, it's just a great balance, I think, to be able to, to have that. And I think also just, you know, it's part of what motivates me. I think that sometimes when I'm kind of, you know, bummed about whatever happened at work, you know, I just think to myself, like, I think to myself several things. I think to myself, like, well, I need to work towards making this world a better place for my daughters. Um, and I also think this is something we don't really talk about that much, I don't think, in our society. But, like, you know, we have a nanny. Um, our nanny comes from a developing country. And, you know, she basically had to leave her kid um, with her mom so that she could come and support her family. And, like, when we think about, you know, the, in quote sacrifices that Western women make, um, they pale in comparison to that, you know, and I really think that it kind of helps you put things in perspective when you're having a bad day. You're like, hey, I didn't have to leave my kid <clears throat> and not see them for a decade uh, just so that I could support my family. So, um, again, back to child related topics. I think, you know, kids are, you know, a big piece of what motivate me and, and just being a mom and just being connected to, you know, the broader mom community um, in the world, I think has just been it's not a hobby necessarily, but it's a, it's another passion of mine. So 
Absolutely. And I love that, that example you gave and what an amazing um, role model you are for, for women and young girls everywhere. I already sent your profile to a friend's daughter who's interested in neuropsychology. I mean, cool. the work you're doing is so extraordinary and you are. Well, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I, and I, I do want to say that I think I, I always get a little bit like, you know, I, I don't take, um, I, I think many people have the ability to really shine. Um, as you know, I think you're, you're saying, Hey, you've really shone and that's great. And I really think a lot of people have that ability, you know, and I think it's just believing in yourself and, 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 you know, just really trying to, um, focus on positive influences in your life that make you believe in yourself rather than the negative. Because I think, you know, there's a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of, a lot of self-doubt and everything else. And I think, you know, the more you can do to really, you know, surround yourself by people that really believe in you, love you, you know, think what you're doing is great. I think the more likely you are to achieve, you know, you know, great outcomes. So I think it's not just about like, Oh, well, you know, being born with like the special stuff. I think a lot of it is about, it's, it's how you live your life and just surrounding yourself with people that are, you know, good influences and, and motivate you and believe in you. So Got it. Well, I've certainly been very lucky to have a lot of those in my life. So, well, and you're creating opportunities for others now. So amazing. I'm so happy to share your story and Thanks, how much. Thank you for your time. Absolutely.